Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Journals of Spiritual Discovery podcast. I just want to mention a couple of items before we begin the interview. One is that at the end of this month, on September the 30th, the TAT Foundation is having a one-day virtual retreat. And the title of that is pretty intriguing. It's called Pretty Lies or Ugly Truths, Fighting Rationalization on the Spiritual Path. There are two primary speakers at that event. One is Bob Servel, who you're probably familiar with if you've been to any of the TAT events. And the other is Mary Song. Uh, she hasn't spoken at TAT before, but she's been very involved with Joel Morewood at the Center for Sacred Sciences. So I'll be very curious to hear what Mary has to say. Now, there's more than just speakers at this retreat. There will also be some participatory exercises and some breakout groups. So again, that's coming at the end of this month, and you can find out more at tatfoundation.org. If you go to that homepage, you'll see a banner there, and that will give you more info on that event. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is that the Tat Foundation Press has just published an expanded edition of Bob Harwood's book, Pouring Concrete. I haven't had Bob on the show, but I should. I got a chance to read most of his book, and uh, it's definitely an intriguing story worth checking out. You can get the paperback or the Kindle version on Amazon, or you, if you have a different favorite bookstore, you can order it as well. Uh, again, that's Pouring Concrete by Bob Harwood, the expanded edition, and it's just been published by the Tap Foundation Press. Now, for this episode... My guest is Sean Pethel. I've known Sean for a number of years, and I always enjoy when I get a chance to speak with him at a TAT event. That's primarily where you'll find him. Uh, you'll also see him occasionally on Zoom events at some of the local TAT groups. He'll show up there. He's definitely a person who, if you get a chance, he's worth talking with worth asking questions of. I really appreciate the insights and the unique perspective that he brings to the spiritual path. I prefaced or introduced the summary of this episode with the question, what happens when you take the rigor of a physicist and combine that with the earnest desire of a seeker of enlightenment? So to get an answer to that, please enjoy this episode. Well, thank you, Sean, for uh, agreeing to be a guest. I really appreciate your time today. No problem. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I couldn't help but laugh when uh, I guess I emailed you a couple of weeks ago and uh, realized that we had planned to do an interview in 2020 and somehow it, it never happened. So here we are almost three years later. Actually, yeah, I was, I remembered we had talked about it, but then I forgot if, I thought maybe you had sent me something and then I forgot. So I just didn't say anything because <laughs> I thought I was, I'd, I messed up somehow. So, you know, I, I ignored something you sent, but you know, two years later, 
nothing's changed. So <laughs> not a problem. All right, good. I do want to say that from my perspective, uh, it's always a treat when, for example, you come to a TAP meeting or uh, on one of uh, the TAP Foundation's virtual events, when you show up there, uh, you are, uh, you're not a, a frequent presenter, but I think that what you have to say is really unique. And I think perhaps that stems in part from your scientific background. Uh, so I'm just really happy to, to have you here today. Cool. I do sometimes see myself as a little bit of a contrarian, and um, I don't mind being that at all. Uh, so especially if I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're in an echo chamber always. And uh, I often tend to notice that uh, these uh, memes that we get stuck in our head as seekers uh, eventually, eventually cause a problem. And so I, I feel some kind of need to, to point that out, to, to point out the elephant in the room that no one else is pointing out. Oftentimes, I can't even tell if I'm saying something obvious or, or really important, but <laughs> I have a compulsion to uh, point out uh, what I think is going to eventually be a problem, even if right now it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have, a, I have a suspicion that that's part of why I really enjoy the presentations that I have seen of yours. Well, if we, if we could, just to give people a little bit of uh, your background, could you tell me, for example, if, uh, if there's a point in time that you would say that your spiritual search really began in earnest? I can look back as far as I want to and see, and see the search in my life. Even back to my earliest memories, I can see the beginnings of the search. But if I had to point at a really, really particular time, uh, it was in my mid-20s, uh, and I was in a bookstore, and I picked up a book that was a summary of Ken Wilber's teachings or thoughts. And that was the first time in my life that I had, I saw uh, Eastern spiritual thinking uh, and the talk of enlightenment. You know, up to that point in my life, I was uh, stuck between these poles of Western materialistic science and uh, fundamentalist Christianity. And I didn't even realize there was a, you know, a, a sideways direction you could go there. And when I was exposed to those ideas, uh, I, I was extremely impressed by that because I, I saw ideas I had never heard before. And I saw that then on the Eastern side, they weren't like the Western um, theosophers or the philosophers where they were just coming up with mental arguments. Uh, those guys were meditating. Those guys were, were exploring. They were coming up with data and trying to systematize an inner space. And they claimed to have found something called enlightenment. And so I respected that, uh, that, that they were actually doing, doing the work. They weren't just imagining things. They were really exploring. And so that the idea of there being some answer in that direction that people have come across uh, just really <laughs> lit a fire under me. I thought, wow. Uh, in fact, I really felt like that my whole life I had been built to seek something like that. 
and to have a word for it uh, really uh, uh, rocketed me <laughs> forward. And now after that point, I spent 10 years just reading books about it until I got disgusted with reading books about it. And I started actually going out. And uh, when I found a community, boy, was that really an accelerant. You know, when I stopped just trying to work alone, but I found a community of people who are also concerned about this, that I could speak about it uh, honestly. Because really, up to that point, I had just been like a secret agent man. I was, I did not want to talk to people who are very um, scientifically minded about things because they would think I'm a kook. And I couldn't talk to it about people who are very religious because they think I was demon possessed. And so <laughs> I was ashamed, actually. You know, I was hiding it. Uh, but then when I, I came to a TAP meeting for the first time, I realized, oh, these are people. You know, if I'm crazy, these people are also crazy, just like me. I found <laughs> a family that I can actually talk about what I care about, too. And that was that really was a, a second stage on the rocket booster for <laughs> for for my search and where where were you living at the time when when you first came across that book that you mentioned uh, same place i am now in uh northern alabama yeah i i'd spent many years since i was in northern alabama is that um do you think part of the reason that you had that it was 10 years before you found a community is because of where you were, or do you think it was in part just your your personality? Maybe it was more of a solitary seeker. Yeah, I think I I'm I always want to do things myself. You know, I, I I'm kind of internal and a private person. And uh, I figured, well, I can figure out this enlightenment thing myself. I don't need to go talk to someone else. And partly that's a defensive mechanism. You know, I don't want to be ashamed. You know, if I fail, I don't want. <laughs> to have told people that I was on the path, you know, something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I also thought, and I hear this from a lot of other people that, well, there's nobody else in my area who cares about this at all. I don't have, there's no way to contact anyone in my area. And, you know, it, it is kind of hard um, to uh, know who else in your particular area is interested in this kind of thing. So it seemed like a barrier. Um, now later I would come across, uh, some, uh, well-known spiritual meditation teacher who lived really just like 20 miles away from me. <laughs> I, was, I was quite shocked <laughs> to learn that. And he showed up just at the right time that I needed someone like that. Uh, but that came after I had ventured forth and started attending meetings. You know, I would drive, uh, 10, 11 hours up to, uh, West Virginia where the Truth and Transmission Foundation, that's where they would have their meetings. And uh, that. And, and once I was there, I heard from these people lots of other resources. I, you know, once you start with any community, you, get, you can branch out from there. So partly just me making ex excuses, and, uh, and it was really just me really making a concerted effort to get out there. Can you, can you say more about the difference between uh, that 10 years of reading and and I can imagine that you were pretty diligent in your studies uh, 
the difference between that and meeting other people, what are more of the specifics about what you gleaned from, from meeting a group of people? You know, we all, at least I do, I have this internal narrative where I'm kind of like on a stage in my own head, lecturing myself, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to solve problems, trying to digest what I've read. Um, and it's amazing how good that can sound in your own head versus when you try to explain it to someone else and then how stupid it sounds <laughs> how many holes there are in what you're thinking about when you actually have to articulate yourself to somebody else um and uh, i also found that when i get around people who are being honest and very open um wow does that help me get very honest and open with myself. It's like, I need an example of somebody doing that. That's really helpful. Um, so, you know, having someone to actually give you feedback and say, well, what do you mean by that? And you know, what, what does that mean? And to also hear people and see people who are seeking and their level of intensity and the sort of questions they're asking, um, that was just tremendously helpful because after at the end of 10 years of reading, I was like, I don't, what do I do now? You know, I don't even know what enlightenment is and I'm not even clear on what I'm after. And so when I got around people who were, had been serious seekers for years, you know, I got to hear how they made that journey. And I would think, you know, they would talk about what they're after. And then I would try that on for size myself and say, is that, is that what I'm after? Um, so th that kind of feedback was just tremendously, tremendously helpful. And, uh, and can you articulate what gelled in your mind as, ah, this is what I'm after? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I started reading about enlightenment, there was a whole lot of vectors of possibility here. I, you know, am I after getting superpowers am i after being in a flow state all the time am i after doing good for humanity being healing people um or am i after some kind of secret knowledge that would you know make me master of everything or something like that you know what what am i after i'm after psychological wellness and um you know, when I started meeting other people who are seekers, I could see, or people who claim to be finders of enlightenment, you know, I could see that, well, wait a minute, this person isn't, <laughs> isn't what I was imagining <laughs> I would be. And then, so that would confront me. And then I would think, well, maybe that part of it, like, what if I didn't have that part of it? What if I, it didn't come with psychological wellness, would I still want it? And then I would, that would let me sort of divide out something that was confusing the issue that, that yes, there was still something I wanted and I could narrow in on that. And uh, pretty early on in my meetings with uh, the TAT Foundation, it was suggested that what I wanted was to know what I am. And uh, I was not convinced by that at first, uh, but, you know, I took it seriously. I, I mulled that over for a while. And what I started noticing was that all my questions did sort of come back around to what am I? It was like any question I might have about the world was really just a sort of indirect way of trying to figure out where I fit in that world. 
like it was a way of sort of defining me by defining everything else that I must be what's left. And so why not just ask, what am I? And it started making a lot of sense to me. I could connect with that, that actually, before I ask any other question, who does it matter to? You know, what, what am I? <laughs> Which question was important? It depends on who I am. So, I, and so as I kept looking at that question, I realized, you know, that's the simplifying thing. That for me, I'm not going to say that's true for anyone else, but for me, that connected me to the drive, to the energy source, to the the thing that I really, really cared about. And did you, um, I, I actually don't, now I think about it, I don't know a lot about uh, your story in terms of uh, what led up to your awakening. Did you... Did you find that um, the TAT Foundation and the people that you met in TAT so forth, like it took you to a certain point, advanced to a certain degree, but then you had to branch out on your own, let's say, that that TAT, that the TAT Foundation didn't have uh, all the answers? I suppose that's my, my question. Yeah, for me, the TAT Foundation was like a home base. And uh, from that home base, I learned a lot of information from people who were coming in and going out and, and doing their own thing. And that's where I learned about other characters. And I, you know, I learned about, well, it's not where I learned about meditation, but I met people who were serious about it. And that actually was not a big emphasis at TAT when I was there, meditation. Um, and so I, I learned there were people who, had, uh, who were claiming enlightenment who really did not follow that path. Uh, but so I went out of TAT and found other teachers who I felt at some point that I needed to meditate. And uh, so I went outside of TAT and uh, met people like uh, uh, Daniel Ingram, who is a sort of well-known uh, meditation teacher. He happened to be living near me and uh, and, and other, other folks as well. And so I never felt like there was any conflict with TAT. Tat was just a place for seekers to meet, and they did have their own kind of system and and teachings uh, due to Richard Rose. Uh, but I found that I was connected with what I needed, and so if my interests follow some other direction, that that that's what I did. And uh, I would say most of my meditation practice was uh, not really inspired by Tat, but was a parallel line of investigation. And how would you describe your meditation practice? So, you know, I just said that it wasn't inspired by TAT, but now that I'm, re I'm remembering very early on in TAT, uh, I was exposed to the idea that if you can see something, then you must be outside of it. Like, can you, can you see something and be it at the same time? And to me, this was a very useful concept to... I could really grab onto that. I could look at things inwardly and say, well, I'm looking at that. So there must be at least some other part of me that's doing the looking. Uh, that other part might be entirely separate. And so that led to a sort of a homegrown meditation uh, for myself in which I would just look inward and notice that I was seeing things and feel that difference, that uh, of seeing things versus being things. 
And uh, so when I got into meditation, uh, it was um, one of the forms that I spent a lot of time with was the Vipassana insight meditation, which that is one of the three so-called characteristics that you're supposed to be noticing uh, during your meditation. You're supposed to notice what's going on non-judgmentally, but you are supposed to ask yourself, is that me? Is that permanent? Is that satisfactory? Um, and so that little, that aspect of the not me thing, I learned from Tat. And uh, that was really the, that made a lot of sense to me. That was one of my major tools when I went into meditation. Uh, I really went crazy on that, <laughs> on that aspect of it. And when you say you went crazy on it, do you mean that you were meditating five hours a day or or was it the intensity what what does that mean uh yeah so i could get very intense with it um i started out just really being having a phobia about meditation not really wanting to do it so i started out with just a few minutes at a time but when i saw that oh i can look at there is stuff going on inside there's data to be collected here i can't apply this principle of if i can see it is it me to it, I, I began to realize, oh, this is getting me somewhere. And so my meditation practice grew. Um, but then maybe like 20 minutes a day kind of thing. And then when I met uh, a meditation teacher, in this case, it was Daniel Ingram, uh, I was exposed to a community that meditated much more <laughs> far. The, the effort they put into it was far greater than I thought was possible. And so when I went to meditation retreats, uh, Ingram instructed me to meditate without ceasing. That is when, you know, all day long and every moment that you can, you are observing what's going on. Um, and I didn't know if that was really possible. And they, he would be very strict about it. You know, as you're pacing, as you're walking meditation, be careful that when you turn to go the other direction, you don't lose focus of your meditation kind of thing. Uh, so I've interestingly, I found that that was possible. So I did retreats doing that kind of thing. And, um, and at home, I would have a daily practice of 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. And then I tried to also bring it into my daily life. Like when I would notice things like anxiety or something like that, would pop up, I would say, oh, I just saw that. Is that me? Or is that extra to me? Um, and then uh, quite out of my control, the intensity of that um, started ramping up to where I would come home sometimes and I would just lay on the bed for an hour or two just doing that. Um, and that's because I was looking at something that I that I could see is where the problem lay, where my issue was. And so I got very intense on that. I think that may not be common, though. Um, when I talk to people about meditation, I don't get a lot of feedback that sounds like my experience. So um, I have some suspicion about why that might be. But, you know, meditation, I just want to say to your audience, don't think you have to be a maniac like me um, it's something that you should probably explore but don't set some kind of crazy standard for yourself you should look into it because it's helping you get forwards helping you address a question that you have not because someone said you should do it 
And uh, if the energy isn't there to do it, you know, I think there's a harm in saying, you know what, I'm going to meditate two hours a day or, or one hour a day for the next year. And then you find that now a week into it, you just can't keep it up. And then you beat yourself up for not doing that. Um, you should be meditating because you're getting something out of it. And uh, if you're not, then, you know, I think you need to be looking at what is it that you want? And do you need to be doing something else? So, um, so yeah, I want to put that caveat in there. I meditated like crazy. <laughs> and the, the, the spiritual literature is full of people who meditated at heroic levels. But <laughs> there are also people who really didn't put much stock in that at all. So, and uh, got somewhere with it. And I believe you mentioned progress, seeing progress in your meditation. What did progress look like? So what it looked like for me was, um, you know, I, I was wondering, like, what am I? And so let's put my attention on what am I? And what do I think I am? You know, can I look at this in meditation? Can I find something in me that I think is me and then just look at it? And now I noticed what would happen is that I would have some sort of fuzzy blob that's me. And as I just kept looking at it, uh, I would notice that the fuzzy blob had parts to it, that it was some moving parts in there. And some of those parts really weren't me uh, in any important way. And so then I could sort of divide off that part and then look at the rest of it. And then that thing would, uh, resolve after time it's kind of like if you walk into a dark room and you don't see anything but if you just stand there for long enough the outlines of things start to come in view and that's what would happen as i would look at whatever i thought i was that you know new pieces of it would show up and then i could look in on that um and i was really just following what was being given to me and so uh it made a whole lot of sense in my mind to say that's progress. That's that's getting me where I'm interested. That is where my interest is, and I'm moving in that direction. So the idea of progress was useful to me. It, it did uh, did anything like uh, Nizargadatta's idea of I am was that a part of your meditation? Was that yeah, I was very impressed by Nisargadatta, by his book, um, I Am That. And uh, I, I think I only read like the first seven chapters or something like that. But uh, I was very impressed by his very pragmatic attitude and his simple uh, assertion to just look at the I am. And uh, I really didn't understand. I wasn't sure what he meant by the I am. And I won't vouch the, that I know what he meant by it. But to me, it was just very simple. What do I think I am? You know, what, where, <laughs> I, I must have some sense of me. Where, where is it? Like, can we look at it? Um, you know, and first for me, that was just, uh, I just sort of did a body scan and said, where in my body am I? And uh, I was able to locate a spot that was kind of golf ball size right behind my eyes that kind of felt like that's me. And so I spent about a month just sitting with that, looking at it. And then after a month, I was like, well, it's a feeling. It's not interesting. 
and I just went on and, and did other things. But then over time, uh, especially when I caught on to this, if I can see it, it's not me kind of thing. You know, I went back to it and, um, uh, and that it evolved from there. Um, uh, and it became part of my practice was to look at that. I am thing. And, uh, I still don't know to this day if that's what <laughs> Nisar Gadada meant or not, but it certainly was fruitful for me. And do you feel like, um, well, did you did you come across any points in your meditation practice where you were stuck, let's say, you, you didn't know what to do next, or you felt like, ah, I should just give up? Yeah, I had that often, not just in my meditation practice, but in the whole <laughs> spiritual search endeavor and on that whole mission, you you know, it would be periodic low points where I'd feel like, uh, especially you know, right at the beginning, especially after 10 years of reading books on enlightenment, I was just really stuck. I was like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. And this is this is the question that when I talk to seekers, I, I'm most... I feel like uh, I'm most interested in trying to help them with is this question of what do I do now? You know, what is the next step on my journey? Because I had that question so often. And uh, I also would have the feeling that, oh, I'm, I really stink at this. I mean, <laughs> I would have these highs where I think, oh, I'm doing, I'm really good at this. I'm really, I'm really special because there's not many people doing this and not many people doing it as well as I'm doing it. And then I would crash and say, "What? Well, I'm fooling myself. You know, what's going on here? This is a fantasy. Um, and maybe if it's not a fantasy, there's, I, I don't deserve it. There's people out there a lot more serious than me uh, who are going after this. And I just don't, I don't have the stuff. I don't have what it takes to get into this. And uh, so that sort of drama is um, something that I feel like when I talk to seekers, I see a lot of that. And that I want to help with a little bit. Um, and so I actually I lost track of your question, but <laughs> this this is a really important thing for me when I'm talking to seekers. It's definitely on the same line as my question, because I was curious if there were any uh, like how you were able to get through those roadblocks or those low points. Is is there anything that you found that you you did? Or was it just kind of eventually something new presented itself? Yeah. So, I mean, there are periods where you're just resting, that nothing's going on. And that's okay. Uh, don't get too bent out of shape about it. But when I look back at my path and what seemed to be working, that seemed to carry me through, I, I try to, I'm trying to put those in words so that I can share that with other people and the chance that their psychology works the same way as, as mine does. But what, what I found was that the way I got through uh, those periods of being down or not knowing what I'm doing or not being a lot of energy was interestingly the same way I was getting through it uh, in my job as a researcher, as a physicist, you know, as a, I do a type of work that's called basic research. And in there, you're not only trying to solve problems, but part of your effort is divided into figuring out what the problem is. What is the question? And these two activities happen at the same time. 
one is more of a longer term thing and one is more of a shorter term thing. And I saw that dynamic happening exactly the same way in my spiritual search. And what it, and so the, the longer term picture that I, I think it's going to help when you find yourself in trouble is always coming back to what do you want? What is your question? Because that's your energy source. What do you care about? That's what gives you direction. And that's what makes you want to do something. If you find yourself not wanting to do something, you need to come back to that question of what do you care about? You know, and don't don't cheat on that. Don't say, well, I care about enlightenment because that's the most important thing that I could ever be doing. About. No, no, no. What do you really care about right now? I mean, maybe tomorrow it'll be different, but right now, what it, connect with what you care about? What has meaning to you? And that can be something that you're embarrassed of. I mean, it, it could just, it, whatever is the case, that's the case and connect with that. And so that, that, and that's not easy. So that's not the kind of thing that you can just say, oh, okay, I know what that is. You're going to have to, at least if you're like me, you're going to have to keep coming back to that and working on that and refining it. Uh, and it's going to change over time. And so there's that is one of the big troubleshooting things that I first think about when someone's struggling in the path. Uh, because people can, I, you know, I, I, I have met people who say they've been doing a certain technique for decades and then say they didn't get anywhere with it. Well, that tells me that, you know, they weren't critically examining what they wanted because they, they were just a believing someone else when they needed to believe they need to connect with what's going on inside of them. So that's a longer term thing. That's really not that easy to, to do, but it's well worth it. Uh, but, and then on the short term, there's like, what do I do right now? Like, you know, maybe you, you have some energy or you feel like you're stuck or like, what am I going to do right now? Uh, this very moment. And what I, what I say to that is that um, I say, imagine this, uh, Imagine that the universe is trying to tell you what to do. It's trying to get your attention. And uh, and I'm not saying this actually happening. I'm just, this is just a, a mental ruse, a rubric to work within uh, that I found very useful for myself. And the game here is to try to figure out what is the universe telling you. And the universe is not, the universe is trying to be as obvious as it can about it. It's not trying to, it's not got some weird synchronicity that it's trying to get you to figure out. No, it's being right in your face about it. It's something that's like one of those blinking yellow sign, you know, signs for advertising. It's putting right in your face. And what is that thing right in your face? And, and then look at it. I mean, that's what seeking is. Seeking is looking. So broil it down to just looking. So what are you looking at right in, right in front of your nose? And that's, that's actually <laughs> takes some skill because we tend to look past what's right in front of our nose for something more complicated. But the universe is speaking to us in really, really simple ways. Just put on the Captain Obvious suit <laughs> and think, what is the most obvious thing that the universe is trying to get my attention on right now? And that can be that I'm a failure at seeking. If that's what's coming up for you right now, then you can immediately start seeking by looking at that feeling that I'm not succeeding. I'm a failure. And just 
putting your attention onto that feeling. Because as soon as you do that, uh, you're creating this little bit of space between the self-narrative that you've bought into and just that feeling. And so now you can see two pieces. There's the feeling which you could explore, like, where is it in my body? Is it, could it be connected to something else? And then, and then the narrative part, the story part, part of it, you can look at that. Is that um, a different thing? You know, I found sometimes when I meditated, I would have all these awful self-defeating thoughts and I'd try to psychoanalyze them. And then I'd realize that, oh, my stomach's upset. <laughs> it's not, it's not <laughs> there wasn't any meaning behind it. It wasn't some deep thing to realize. That was just my body wasn't comfortable for some reason. And so whatever it is, is popping up for you. You can make that into an object to look at and advance. And that, that has an effect, I believe, of advancing of now you're seeking, now you're looking and now things are being revealed and uh, that can sort of get the ball rolling. And you can always kind of come back to that, I think. So those are my little tricks for uh, getting unstuck. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I, I do want to explore just for a second. Uh, you mentioned that you are a researcher in physics. Um, I know that you have your PhD. Uh, this, this time period that we're talking about, when you were doing reading, now you're intensely meditating. Uh, you're also, I mean, you're working as a PhD physicist, and you have a family, and you you have kids too, right? So you have a very full life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this kind of gets to one of those contrarian things that I like to say. And that is, as a seeker, you need to get your priorities straight. And I like to say that because people are thinking, I'm going to say, Enlightenment needs to be your number one priority, but that just wasn't the case for me. I thought enlightenment needed to be my one number one priority, but I realized that actually I care about my family and more than I cared about enlightenment. And that if it came to a choice between my family and enlightenment, that I was going to skip enlightenment. Um, and that honesty was tremendously empowering for me. Because prior to that point, uh, every time I thought about doing a retreat or going on isolation, I, I was worried that, you know, am I abandoning my family? What am I doing with this? Am I going to go crazy and join a monastery somewhere and abandon my family? And, and then when I was with my family, I'd be thinking, you know, I really should be meditating or doing something like that. So I was kind of sucking at both. And when I got my priorities straight, that all cleared up. I was able to do my uh, my spiritual pursuit things without worrying about my family because I knew that I was committed to them and that, that they'd be fine without me for a weekend or <laughs> or something like that. And uh, you know, and I recognized that there were other things um, that they were they were a higher priority for me than enlightenment. And so once you get get honest with yourself. What what are my really really my concerns? You know, in the order of priority, then you can assign energy to that, uh, proportionate to how much you care about that. And oftentimes that will change. And when you become conscious of it, you'll see that you know there's some other things that I'm doing 
with a high priority that I don't really care about. You know, I can drop that and save more energy for things that I do. Part of that knowing what you want part of seeking. And uh, so, you know, and I see in other seekers, I like to bring that up because I see that conflict in other seekers. You know, most of the, the crowd I run around with, uh, they're not monks in monasteries. You know, if you were, if this was really your highest priority, then you'd, you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be off in the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> I don't know what you'd be doing, but <laughs> you'd be very clear about it. <laughs> uh, but most of us, the people I meet and people like myself, they're managing lots of things. And so that's just, uh, uh, that's the case. And uh, just be blunt about it. Be honest about it. Don't, don't put yourself, imagine yourself some, you know, uh, in a role that you're not actually playing. That's not true. And, um, you know, I, I see a lot of young people, especially who are very conflicted about going to college, about getting married, uh, a career versus enlightenment. They think, well, you know, I have this time period right now where I could be getting enlightened or I could be doing those other things. And they're kind of doing a crap job at both because the truth is <laughs> they're not totally committed to enlightenment. You know, these other things keep bothering them because they're actually higher priority. And if they can just say, hey, that's the case. If that's the case, then they, you know, then go with that. And you're not abandoning your enlightenment. Uh, you're just uh, following a path that's more true to yourself. Your meditation practice, you, you talked about how you were having these periods of great intensity. Um, I mean, at some point, uh, this culminated in an, in an awakening for you, or at least that's my understanding. Can you can you talk a bit about uh, the story of that, the lead up to that? Was there something in particular going on? So I had uh, locked in on the I am, or at least what I felt like I was trying to find that within me, and it and through meditation that kind of evolved. Um, you know, I could see that. You know, earlier on, I was talking about it seemed like I was a golf ball sized thing behind my eyes. But when I came back to that, I uh, started looking at it. I realized that that location was separate from this more pure thing that I thought I was, that I could see the location sensation as not being essential to what I thought I was. So then I was looking at what was the remainder of that. What was that thing that I thought it was? And that that was a very elusive thing for me for a while to uh, kind of nail down and anchor in meditation. But I got to where I could find that every single time. And I would look at that and I was looking at that and saying, well, how could that be me if I'm looking at it? And I would play that game with it, stare at it. Uh, at the same time, I was also doing uh, Vipassana, the insight meditation, which was training me to notice everything in my awareness. And just to notice it and say, is that me? Is that not me? Is that permanent? Is that temporary? Is that satisfactory to me? And those two paths just came together uh, when uh, the mentor I was using at the time, Daniel Ingram, after I did a retreat at his house, he surprised me by saying, now I just want you to use all this concentration you built up and just look at the I am which is not something I read in his book. So 
Um, I was surprised to see that. Maybe that was something he was saying to me in particular because he knew me. And then when I left his place from that point, I knew, I knew in my heart that this is what I needed to be doing was just putting all my attention on this I am thing that I had isolated. And so I just, that, that intensity of that ramped up and to make a guess, I would say it's because I was clear. I was clear that this is where I had to be looking. This is the door I needed to be knocking on. And uh, I was hundred percent clear on that. And so I think that has something to do with the energy really ramping up. Uh, and so I, I just was, I was, you know, I had this tool of if it's, if I'm seeing it, it's not me. It was like a jackhammer that did work so well for me up to that point. But um, I just kept hammering at that. I am. And it just would not move. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I was, creating a feedback loop where I was strengthening it by trying to fight it or doing something like that. And then what happened was spontaneously one day, I just said, I'm just going to rest in the I am. If this thing is so strong, if this is some kind of foundational thing that I can't jackhammer through, then maybe I can just rest on it and let it worry about being me. And I'll just sit in meditation and put my attention on it. And the feeling was surrendering to it, to rest in it. Um, now, that just happened spontaneously. And later, my mind concocted some story about why I decided to do that. But that's what happened. And then I remembered that reading in Nisargadatta's book, that he said that meditating on the I am was pleasant. And up to that point, it was never pleasant for me. It was... <laughs> <laughs> this was a battle. I mean, this was, uh, you know, an expedition. You know, <laughs> and so I realized, oh, maybe this is what Nisargadatta meant. So I would just rest in the I am, and I would get really, really still, and uh, and nothing happened. <laughs> I just rested in the I am for a long time. Nothing happened, uh, and I was okay with nothing happening. I just knew that I needed to be there doing that. Um, and it was pleasant enough, so it wasn't a burden. Uh, but then one day I was talking to a fellow on the phone uh, about it. And then the, that I am just vanished. It just like popped like a balloon and disappeared. And uh, boy, was I astonished by that. Um, and so uh, I felt ecstatic about it. I was ecstatic about it for a week or so. But then I started asking myself, um, okay, so what am I then? If this am I, I am thing is gone, what am I? What, what do I think I am? And the answer that uh, I found was that I felt like I was just the awareness, some kind of pure awareness of things. I was the field of awareness. And, um, but, um, and I might throw in as an aside here. I went back to look for the I am. I thought, you know, I've, I'm really good at locking in on the I am. Is this really gone? And I, what it happened is that I found it again. What I found that it changed, though, was that before of all the experiences I'm having, that experience of I am was somehow put on a huge pedestal. And I was thinking it was special. But when it disappeared, what actually happened was that it no longer was special. It was just back down into the noise of other 
experiences. So it didn't actually disappear. It just wasn't important anymore. Um, so, but then the, then the question is, what, what, am, what am I now? If the I am was just a feeling, it's not, not something that I think that I am anymore. You know, it's not giving me a problem anymore. What, what is it I'm left with? And so that was the awareness thing. Um, and I hear a lot of other teachers talk about being the awareness. And um, I think I know what they're talking about because I went through that phase. Uh, the part that I'm not sure about is that I went past something like that. And when I hear other people talk about it, I don't know if they're meaning the same thing I'm meaning or if, you know, their minds just weren't so nitpicky as mine because I started asking, you know, I started being suspicious of this awareness, you know, because what, what does it mean to say that I'm the awareness, but there are objects in awareness? It's like, am I not also the objects that are in awareness? Or is the awareness different from the objects? So I'm back to a dichotomy of, am I this or that or both or neither? What's going on? I was not at peace about it. I realized uh, being the awareness is not going to cut it for me. <laughs> um, but I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, I didn't know what to meditate on other than just to keep looking at that problem. Um, but really, I was quite stumped. I didn't really... I have a clue as to what to do about this thing, uh, the situation I was in. Uh, but then spontaneously, I think it was about a month um, later, um, I woke up one morning and I tell the story that I, I was, I was actually having to be in Walmart. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I just happened to notice that, you know, I'm pushing a cart around Walmart and I just happened to notice that, I don't have a problem anymore. The problems are gone. I, I'm not worried about it at all. And I think what happened was that something happened while I was asleep that night, uh, probably early in the morning, because I, I had many realizations while I slept and I'd wake up with them and I'd have to backtrack and figure out what happened. And this is, I think this is what, one of those things. And so I asked myself, wait a minute, I was all concerned about, am I the awareness, the objects in the awareness? What, What's going on here? What happened to that problem? And when I put my attention on that, uh, my reaction was to laugh. It looked hilarious to me. It looked silly. The whole idea. I that see what I could see was that my mind was inventing this dichotomy, this story of an awareness and the objects of the awareness, and it was creating a drama about it. And it was, um, and in fact, it just, everything I ever thought was a part of a narrative with characters, you know, where what is, has been split into uh, different actors that have relationships that evolve and create paradoxes because they're both true and not true. And that, uh, that that's what was going on the whole time. And once my mind could see that it had no capacity to comprehend what is. So I use the word what is just as a filler because it's not something that can be spoken of because speaking of and ideas and feelings and all these things are, they're part of what is, but they're not 
it. As a seeker, we're kind of trapped on this plane of ideas and feelings and emotions, and we're searching around in that plane for what is, for the truth with a capital T, for the absolute with a capital A. And the truth, what is, is bigger than that. It can't be expressed that way completely. And so that's what my mind saw that morning, was that it could never approach this thing of what is. And it just let it go. And when, it, when, when I stopped trying to substitute what is with some paltry idea of what is or a storyline or a, ephemeral mood or something like that, then it was more than obvious. It was more than self-obvious what is. What is, is. It, just can't, it can't be captured by the mind's entrapment of it or some little sock puppet theater that would create a narrative about it. And then my mind was instantly completely disinterested in it. Um, it and, and I was left completely satisfied by the result. Um, and here's eight years later, I'm still completely satisfied with what happened then. Uh, and I call that my enlightenment experience. I'm not 100% sure that everyone else who's talked about enlightenment is exactly talking about the same thing I am. But for me, that was 100% satisfying experience. And it remains that way today. And the other thing that happened was that uh, I remember this quite vividly. Uh, because up to that point, uh, I had thought of myself as being someone who's very articulate, who's very good at explaining complex things to people who aren't trained and and I do that as part of my job actually and I, I I really had this ego about you know when I get enlightened um stand back you know <laughs> all these other guys who are running around in circles saying ridiculous things I'm going to make it clear for everybody I'm going to spill the beans and uh you know and and I'm I'm going to I'm really good at that uh, but the amazing thing that really surprised me at that moment was that I instantly lost interest in doing that. I, <laughs> I actually said to myself at the time, I'm never, I'm never going to talk about this again. I'm never going to, it's not going to be part of my life going forward to talk to people about this because it's not speakable. Anything you speak of, you're just going to create more mess. You know, you hear some teachers saying, you know, I'm just the finger pointing at the moon kind of thing. You can't point at it. You know, that that's not true. You can't, there's, there's nothing you can talk about when it comes to this absolute. I can say a word, what is, that kind of thing. But anytime you try to use that word, you're going to mess it up. And so that was so profoundly clear to me that I, I felt like, nope, I'm not going to engage in that. Uh, there's plenty of spiritual teachers out there failing brilliantly to do this. I don't need to be trying to <laughs> be another one. <laughs> so uh, obviously I changed my mind to some extent on that though. <laughs> well, first, thank you. Uh, there's a lot in what you, in what you just said. And I really appreciate uh, the way that you said it. I could imagine 
certain listeners right now hearing what you just said and picking out certain words. Well, Sean, Sean mentioned awareness and Sean said, I am. And then Sean said, what is? And, and then if I compare that to what this other teacher said and, you know, are they talking about the same thing, doing a lot of parsing of what you, what you just said. And uh, I guess what comes to my mind is that might be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, story, a lot of narrative. And I guess my question to you then is, how, how do we, is there a way for us to sidestep that kind of natural reaction of the brain to want to build a story out of everything it hears and try to figure out the answer based on words? So, no. <laughs> I think, no, you can't sidestep it. But, you know, and the reason that I started that I changed my mind about talking uh, was because I realized that I can't talk about what is, uh, but we can talk about what you're trying to substitute for what is. That is in your mind. That is in your heart. Those are things you can examine. And so when we're, when our mind's going to create stories, that's just what it does. We might as well define the mind as that, as, as, a, as a narrative machine. And it does that. Um, so we, you know, maybe there's a way to stop it. I, I don't know, but uh, wasn't much of a way to stop my mind from doing it. But we can turn that into something useful. So what we can do is if we find through self-examination, we find that we do have this strong narrative that we're really believing in. Um, well, that becomes a, a, a place to investigate. Because if, if we got this feeling we're on a search because we think something's not right, well, maybe it's not right with the story you're telling yourself. And discovering your own narratives allows you to examine them. And the mind is really good at analyzing things and breaking them down. And your intuition, when used on yourself, has access to, uh, to the knowledge of when you're fooling yourself. You know, you can get a feeling that, hmm, I'm saying this, but then do I really believe it? And so the way to use stories in this search, at least for me, was to once you see the story you're telling yourself, try crafting the opposite story. So a counter narrative, like how might it be that the exact opposite or something sufficiently different could also be true or is true or more true? And then start looking at that critically and saying, well, maybe, you know, and, and so it's like when people will say, uh, well, there's a present and there's a future and a past and other people will say, no, there's only the now. Well, that's a useful counter story to someone who may be always anxious about the future. And I would say that the story of the now is also just a story, but it, is a very powerful, useful one if it can dislodge you from the one that you're stuck in presently. And um, so this, we're stuck, our minds and our hearts are stuck on this mental, emotional plane. How do we get out of it? Well, you kind of have an opportunity to see, to relax away from the stories when you see your stories changing. So when the story is changing on you, 
you're kind of in between stories, you're loosened up a little bit. And just noticing the story changing, noticing your conviction in certain things changing, noticing your emotions changing. Um, this, I think, is useful. It's, uh, it's a very useful moment in seeking when you're looking at seeing that this is how this narrative is constructed. And um, so that's, that's what I say is like, let's look at your stories and let's think of new stories and move around a little bit. And just with the caveat, don't get stuck in the new story. Just keep that in the back of your mind. You can dive into this new story and you might find this new story to be really useful. It might be like a salvation experience. It might change your life. But keep in the back of your mind that this was, there used to be a story before this story. And that, you know, this story exists, you know, is also not permanent. And, you know, that just that noticing of it creates this little separation that kind of, in in the in this analogy, it kind of lifts you above the plane a little bit, and so that that's the game how I like to to describe the story game. Thank you. Uh, you you mentioned realizations during the night happening during the night, and uh, I just want to inquire into that a little bit because I I don't think I've ever had uh, a guest on this show mention something like that. Is that um, was that just a uh, random occurrences do you feel like the brain it does i mean you must think that the brain is working on problems during the night unconsciously is there any way that we can cultivate that or use that to our advantage yeah so that was very common for me uh at work doing research in the spiritual anything i was interested in as i was going to sleep that night i'd be thinking about it if I'm thinking about it with a high enough intensity, my mind continues to think about it while it's sleeping. And I dream about it and sometimes become lucid in my dreams. And then when I would become lucid in my dreams, I could really go after something. I could say, uh, where's my body? Where is my mind? Uh, if the mind's creating this dream, then I'm looking at the mind. You know, where am I then? Uh, you know, so that I found... Uh, seeking while lucid dreaming to be very useful you just blew my mind because i think you just said that you were seeking while you were lucid dreaming yes <laughs> that's incredible so um i don't know if this is i think this is not common because i don't uh meet many like you said i don't meet many people who resonate with that but i think most people do believe in the idea that if something's bothering you when you go to bed you wake up in the morning and you kind of have things sorted out a little bit a little bit of clarity and so that's that's very powerful and i found that to be very powerful not only in my research but very powerful in my uh, spiritual search uh to watch as i fell asleep watch the state change as far as i could to see that oh look everything i think is real is shifting here we think things are real just based upon a feeling that they're real but when you see that feeling change you realize you're not so sure about what's real so watching yourself fall asleep fall asleep with some thought on your mind um, can sometimes lead you to uh, wake up with something kind of sorted out um, in the morning uh, i think my mind is not normal in that 
and I think it's because I have autism. Uh, it's just a mind that intensely focuses on things. And so that's probably more common uh, for, for someone, a mind like mine versus someone who's not really that way. Um, but consider it, you know, <laughs> consider going to bed with this and, and wake up in the morning thinking about it too. So did, am I, is my thinking about this different than uh, it was when I, when I went to sleep? But I encourage people to, to look into that. It was a big part of my path, but I've become recently aware that that might not be how it works for other people. Um, I mean, you definitely, you paint, you paint the picture of somebody who's, who was very intense about the search and very dogged in the search. Uh, somewhere, I, I, I believe I heard you mention uh, about effort and effortlessness. Like there's certainly seekers get the idea that all this effort that I'm applying that maybe that's a problem. And if I could just be, if I could just approach this work effortlessly, that that would be a superior way. Uh, but that's, that's not, uh, you consider that a false dilemma. Is that correct? This effort versus effortlessness. So, yeah, I think I'm a proponent of trying different techniques, especially techniques that are contradictory to one another. Um, so I'm a big proponent of trying effortlessness. If you find yourself a person who is very um, caught up in effort and being very self-judgmental about that effort, not being good enough and beating yourself up about it, you know, that that's a sign that you probably be taking that effort model too seriously. <laughs> and it might be good to try to understand what would an effortless model be. Um, it's, it's just a different mode of seeking. You don't have to say, no, this is the absolute truth. And this other way is complete doomsday. You'll never get out of the trap doing that. That's not necessary to think any of those thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm just very pragmatic. There's not a dilemma here. You can use both methods. And when you're using one method, you know, to avoid certain things. And, uh, <laughs> and so you just honor that method while you're using it and see what that means to you. I, I found it very useful. I, so I didn't use a whole lot of the effortlessness uh, at first, but I did find it very interesting that it allows you to look at uh, the control issue, the, the free will issue. And this is usually at the heart of people feeling like, you know, they are self is that they make decisions and they control things. And the effortlessness allows you to look at that from a different angle. Like, what am I actually controlling? You know, and some people think probably because of the name that effortless means that there's no nothing happening. There's no energy put into it. But you'll find that energy arises and the willpower to do something arises and effort arises. So it's not exactly effortlessness, but it's one in which you don't have to be assigning so much credit and blame for. It just arises. And so if you hear a person like me who comes across as being super intense, you know, you've got your own effort level, whatever it is. And if you're beating yourself up for it not being what you think it should be, well, then you're kind of using up your energy in something that might not be taking you to in a direction you care about. 
So just go with the effort level that you have and watch the effort level and don't necessarily you know, consider that it might not be up to you. And so size your activity to the effort level you have. And it might drastically increase. It might disappear from you. Just keep track of it and act in a way that's in, in accordance with it. And so I don't see the whole effort versus effortlessness thing as a a real opposite camps that uh, one's got to be right and the other's not. You know, they're just different techniques that you can use both of them. And I encourage, I, I felt like for me, it really helped to switch between different techniques uh, because, you know, you get using a technique and at first a lot of interesting things are happening and then you kind of run out of steam and uh, you feel like you hit a wall. And then you start thinking about other things you might be doing. And, you know, I found it was pretty useful to switch to an opposite technique. And you'll find that, you know, the time you took off from that, something happened in the background. You understood something more and you go further with it. So this back and forth kind of thing, I think, is, you know, uh, pretty useful. As long as we don't get into any kind of narrative of dilemmas, you know, or... <laughs> incompatibility of spiritual approaches it's interesting to me and that i i suppose just uh i have a quick reaction when i think about scientists is well scientists are very rigid and they have very set ways of doing things but you actually paint a picture of uh, i think both science and spiritual seeking is really being creative and being very flexible and using whatever tools it takes to consider all the possibilities it sounds like it's what you're saying yeah yeah i think um science especially hard science like the areas i'm in are very mathematical so uh, naturally you think that means you're very rigid uh very rigorous and things are right or wrong proven or unproven actually with science is about building models and then and those models really come from your intuition. And then you check them rigorously. You're constantly checking those models. And those models only have regions of validity. And so you're always trying to come up with better models, or models that have bigger validity or, val validity or explain something the old model can't. And so that's a lot of creative process that's in there. So for me, my job often looks like is me in front of a whiteboard and a colleague or two. And I'm just trying to pose a problem. I'm trying to get the problem into a form where we can then start to analyze it using something like mathematics. And so a big part of the effort is just, what is the interesting question here? What's important? And, uh, and that uh, usually in a research project changes over time. You get more and more clarity on it. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, for a long time in my career, I would get pretty stressed out because, um, you know, I had funding to do research for a period of years and then, you know, that would be ending. And I would think I've got to come up with some genius idea, you know, some kind of really great new question. Uh, and what was that going to be? Um, and then what, what happened, and this was in conjunction with my spiritual search, is when I started looking at, well, what do I control? I realized that, well, the, the process of coming up with new ideas, new research ideas, or any new creative idea is to really kind of open yourself up and follow what is arising. Like, what is coming up for you? And so it's almost like a mechanical 
process or a process that doesn't require you, you can trust the universe to bring up something. And then all you have to do is follow that breadcrumb to the next breadcrumb and the next breadcrumb, like doodling or something like that, where you're not, you don't know at first exactly where it's going. You just know you're interested in it and you just keep following those things. And a story will kind of build out of that project will build out of that. And I learned to escape some of my anxiety and research is by saying, I'm just going to let the universe tell me what I'm interested in and, and go from there. And that's how my spiritual path started developing as well. I just look. Um, my whole job is just to look. That's what seeking is, is looking. I look, something comes up, and then I look at that. And then after looking at that, something else comes up, and I look at that. And I, I just, I tried to divorce myself, my self-narrative out of it. And that reduced my anxiety. And it seemed to produce a better result, actually. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, I began to see the scientific process as a creative process, as as a problem-solving, creative problem-solving process that also involved creating the problem to begin with. But it seemed like exactly the same thing I was doing in my spiritual path as well, which was a big surprise to me because I thought, oh, the problem of enlightenment is on some higher order. I No, it's not going to involve any, any uh, techniques you're going to, you know, find in science or youtube or anything like that it's on a higher plane or something but actually the problem is right here on this plane and you can avail yourself of any problem solving technique you know you get on youtube and you'll find just millions of videos on how to beat procrastination how to you know live a better life and you know if those things are coming up for you all of those are fair game uh to apply to your spiritual search You mentioned intuition a couple of times and, and you were talking just then about following the breadcrumbs. I know one thing that one thing that I struggled with is trusting my intuition and being afraid that uh, my intuition is is literally going to lead the breadcrumbs are going to lead me to the refrigerator whereupon <laughs> I will have a big turkey sandwich and then I'll just want to take a nap. <laughs> so how do uh, it, it it can you relate to that or is it the sure. uh, yeah 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 uh so that that brings me back to this thing that i encourage seekers to do which is connect to what do they want you know what is it that's meaningful to them what is it that they really want and if they can really kind of pose that problem to where it can be pursued, uh, there's energy behind that. There's a lot of energy. If, if there's no energy behind it, then I don't think that's what you want. Um, now, energy can come and go, but when you get connected to what matters to you, it's going to matter to you more than that turkey sandwich. Well, unless you're starving. <laughs> then the priority is the turkey sandwich. But, but I think the following the bread comes to the refrigerator means that you're at that present not really connecting with what it's important to you. So that's just filling the void. So, I mean, if you look into it and you find that, you know what, I just want to eat, you know, that's it. That's what I want to eat. I <laughs> didn't go with that. You know, if that's the case, then that's the case. But I think for a lot of seekers, 
they're not in contact with what really matters to them or not not got it in very good focus if i came to you and i said sean you know i'm i i try to meditate you know every week i start monday and i say all right i'm going to meditate 30 minutes a day every day this week and monday and tuesday i do it and then wednesday i get busy and it doesn't happen and then thursday i i get in five minutes and then and then uh, Friday and Saturday and Sunday, I, nothing happens. And then I remember again, Monday morning, yes, I really want to meditate 30 minutes a day. I hear this, right? I'm going to do this and it doesn't happen. I'm going to do that and it doesn't happen. Is the root cause that those people are, they, they haven't connected with what they are really after? Well, it's my, my go-to for troubleshooting is that's the first thing. You know, if your computer doesn't start, is it plugged in, you know, kind of thing, you know, that's the plug, right? You know, let's check that one first, right? Um, when when they say, you know, they, they're going to commit to meditating 30 minutes a day, and then they forget doing it. Um, that might mean that they don't know why they're meditating. You know, what, what, have they thought through why they want to meditate? Is it because someone gave a great talk on meditation, and they thought, well, I really should be doing that? It's not good enough, probably. I mean, some people, wow, they can just stick to it even if they don't know why. But a lot of people can't really do that. I knew I couldn't do that. I had to know, what am I, what, why am I intrigued with this particular method of meditation? What is it I think I'm going to get out of that? And when I meditate, when, when I employ that practice, I'm trying to, am, am I getting what I thought I was getting out of that? Or am I misunderstanding the point of this? Um, and so that, engagement keeps me interested and uh, you know after a while if it's just doesn't seem to be getting me where i wanted to go then throw it away don't spend another moment on it <laughs> do something else that you think might get you where you want to go so you know if 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 you're sent out in the field to chase a fox then you see the fox well you know what to do but you know if you're sent out in the field and you had a story about a fox but you don't see a fox anywhere <laughs> it's like what are you going to do you're going to wander around so that that would be my first go-to thing is have we connected? Do we get, are we getting a connection here for why you're doing it? Yeah, thank you. Well, we're uh, we're getting close to an an hour and a half on this. I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, I always like to ask guests if they have a favorite book that they tend to recommend to people. I'm always curious about that. So, do you if someone a uh, seeker comes to you and Hi, Sean, you know, what do you think would be a good book for me to read? Is there a go-to? The book that stands out for me is Nisar Gadada's uh, I Am That. And it was really just the first, I don't know, seven or so chapters of that. Uh, I got a lot of direction and sense from that. I actually don't didn't read many books. After that ten period of <laughs> 10 years of reading books, I was all about doing something. And uh, not reading books just i would books were more like a reference for me I, when i needed to get into learn something in particular the other book that popped up right at the great time for me and helped me a lot and again i only read the first bit of it because that was the most important part uh was daniel ingram's book uh, mastering the core teachings of the buddha i actually don't recall it's got kind of a long title it's a huge book but the very beginning of the book he talks about falling into depression 
that there is a pattern, he believes there is a pattern of people having a kind of spiritual awakening, being very excited, having kind of peak spiritual experiment, experience, and then falling into a very dark place and getting stuck there for years. And this is something that he experienced and he believes many spiritual seekers experience. And he talks about that and how to get through it. And I was a person who really didn't get stuck in dark places very often, but I was at the moment that I picked up that book and I, I saw from his description of how to get past it and how to get past it was to recognize, to, to look is the same thing I've been saying. Look at that depression. Look at that narrative as this is the new thing that universe wants to show you. It's almost like, um, Universe is showing you things and saying, okay, do you think this is you? And next thing, do you think this is you? And then it pulls a really tough one, like self-doubt. Self-doubt pops up and we're like, oh, self-doubt. It's, you know, got me. But when you see, you can almost gamify it. That's what I started doing. You know, bad feelings or self-doubt, those are really close to your identity. Uh, and so if you can see them, that's really, really important. And so that's what, Daniel Ingram showed me about this, what he called the dark night, this, this depression phase that I was into that. Um, so I would say that book was a, was a big influence for me. Um, and then I would also say for a person who's very logical, uh, Douglas Harding's books were just pure gold. I thought that guy was just so logical and methodical about his approach. And he would just come up with the most creative experiments to be done. And um, boy, I think his, his discussion of things is about as clear as one can get in a modern day English. So I would throw that out there too. Nice. Nice. I'll make sure that I link to some of those books in the show notes. What's life like after enlightenment? I think that's a question that seekers often want to know, you know, like what, what am I doing all this for? <laughs> right? Yeah. Is everything grand after enlightenment? Well, that is uh, it is interesting because you mentioned uh, being clear about what you want, and and you said uh, like some people might be after uh, like a psychological development, or uh, there are different goals that people might have. So you, you said for yourself that uh, what happened eight years ago that it was. Uh, how did you phrase it? Completely satisfying or utterly satisfying? Yeah, right. Right. And I think people want to hear that. Um, so I, I say that because I did get what I was after. <laughs> there, 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 I did. It happened. Uh, it's a thing. Um, so I'm just, you know, being another voice out there to say that. But then people get very curious about, well, what's life like after that? You know, am I now just completely in the flow all the time and have no worries and uh, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I thought it might be worth saying something about that is that because I find it a little difficult to describe myself. I, you know, I would say that I still get caught up in things. I still get anxious about things. Um, I, I'm not some kind of, I'm not stuck in some kind of static state. It's like I was before i have up and down days. Uh, I learn new things about myself. Uh, I get worried about things. Uh, uh, but there is a difference in that. Well, one thing, 
these ultimate questions no longer bother me. I just feel clear about them. And these, these daily questions uh, that could pop up all the time that I can get invested in like ideologies or religions or financial advice or whatever it is. um, They just don't have the existential stickiness to them that they used to. Like, I don't feel that core existential angst that people talk about if I am interpreting it the right way that I did before. You know, before a lot of stuff I thought about, I felt like I I'm on a time limit here. I've got to figure this out before I die. You know, this is important. <laughs> this is it's really important to figure out what's going on. And now I just I just let my uh mind start weaving its narratives and get interested in whatever it's interested in. And it, I don't try to make meanings or purpose or these storylines I don't try to promote them into some absolute status like I was trying to do before. I'm not on this futile search for the absolute within the realm of the mind or the heart. So I'm relieved of that. There's a relief from that. And I'm more connected now with my daily life. And there's a question here about relationships and with relationships to the world than I was before when I was seeking. You know, when I was seeking, that's all an illusion, right? I'm supposed to be figuring out the truth. Um, But, you know, what's illusion and what's real? That's just another narrative, uh, another false dichotomy in a way. Um, You know, I find that now I'm more connected. Things are, in some sense, more meaningful to me now than they were before. Before, if something meaningful came up for me, I would say, is that really meaningful? Did I really bother with that how could it be more meaningful than understanding what truly going on at the absolute level at the absolute level nothing has meaning down here and so i was not as connected with life while i was seeking as i i feel that much more now uh i can feel sad more more sad than i could before (laughs) just you know i just feel it more directly than i think that i felt before and um so I'm freed from that angst and I'm free to actually engage in whatever's going on at the moment uh, more than I was before. So I think I'm still trying to articulate that. I'm still trying to understand that. And uh, and maybe something in me is still maturing along those lines. But yeah, that's. I think it's an important question and that's about the best I can do with it right now. It's... Uh quite the conundrum because as soon as uh as soon as you sean start talking about yourself then people some people will say oh well hold on a second i thought he was awakened therefore there is no self but what is he talking about with you know why does he even care or why is all those why are those reactions still going on inside of him that kind of thing yeah those are very good questions and I think seekers should be asking those questions. Um, and I asked those questions when uh, I first started meeting people who said they were enlightened. You know, I met a guy who said he was enlightened and it turns out like he was also big into old cars. And I thought, why are you, what would you care about old cars for? You're enlightened. You should be above all this kind of stuff. You know, and I just started noticing all the enlightened people just kind of do what other people do and are interested in what other people are interested in. and. And I started wondering, so what am I 
trying to get to a state where I'm not interested in anything, you know, or I'm just sort of stuck in a snow globe or something, you know, just like just frozen, you know, what, what is it that I really want? You know, so those kind of questions are really important for seekers not to shy away from, I think, because, you know, I've felt a little, I didn't want to attack people for having interests, you know, saying, <laughs> but I think, you know, if it's done, you know, don't, don't be nasty, but I think those are important questions. I would encourage seekers to ask them of enlightened people. Thank you. Thank you. Well, is there, uh, are there any other parting thoughts that you have? Anything that you feel that you really, really want to say that we haven't touched upon? I, I kind of think if I keep talking, I'll just start saying the same old stuff over again. So this, this probably is a good place to, to that I can let you go. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. I, as we were talking, I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, I wish that we had some, uh, live questions going on yeah i i really like to get questions from seekers that's that's more important i feel like than me theorizing about stuff or just talking about my own path trying to help a seeker figure out what to do next you know because they have that answer they have that answer in them and i, I often like to say i don't have a superpower that lets me look inside of you and figure out what's what you need to be doing um but you have that superpower. <laughs> you have that superpower. You have the ability to look inside um, and train your intuition on that and use your mind to, to criticize yourself and, and dig in there and follow those breadcrumbs. And so I have this, this uh, optimism that, that I could communicate that to people. Uh, even if I can't communicate <laughs> the the absolute to people that I might be of some help in letting them discover for themselves what it is that's important to them. Yeah. If people want to uh, reach out to you, could we leave your email, for example, in the, uh, on the show notes, how, how would somebody get in touch with you? I don't have students. Uh, I show up at TAT. Like you said, kind of once a year when they invite me, I do Zoom meetings when people invite me, uh, but um, uh, I don't see myself as a, a teacher with students. So I'd rather not put out my information. People usually wind up contacting me because they know someone that I know, <laughs> but I very much do enjoy meeting with seekers, but I don't think I'm I want to put myself out there as a teacher and open up my doors to people to, to walk in and, and contact me because I just don't seem to be that made of that. So yeah, I'm going to hopefully remain sort of elusive. I think it's what you said at the beginning. I'm a rare character that shows up every once in a while. I'm very happy to remain that. <laughs> so, uh, so people should keep, uh, keep an eye on the uh, TAT Foundation events and, uh, if they see that you're showing up, make sure they go so they could ask you some <laughs> questions. If they're that anxious, <laughs> yes, yeah, that is that is one way to do it. And while I'm there, I'm I'm totally open to anyone talking to me about anything. That's that's the purpose of being. Yeah, there. you know, I I noticed that uh, I can't remember what meeting it was. Uh, I guess it was last year, maybe where we were both at the meeting. And yeah, you're super engaged with people, and uh, yeah, uh, and obviously really want to help people. It was awesome to see. 
Yeah, I'm almost not like my normal self there because my normal self, I'm very private and the stick. To this. <laughs> but at those meetings, uh, there's clearly some kind of energy that that I, I'm I'm there 100 percent to try to help people. And I'll sit up all night and I'm a I go to bed early, but <laughs> I'll sit up to the wee, wee hours of the morning talking with people uh, because that's why I'm there. And so that's probably the best way to interact with me. There's a, some of the tat folks like there's. Uh, a fellow named Bill King who runs a, a Zoom meeting, and the people are from kind of all over the world there. And uh, he invites me uh, to host a Zoom meeting every few months, and so that seems to be something I'm open to is doing Zoom meetings with groups. Yeah, especially if people are there to ask me questions, because that's <laughs> that I think is the most valuable thing to do. So, well, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me, Sean, and including me on your list of people worth speaking to absolutely uh, absolutely it's been fun thank you for listening to this edition of journals of spiritual discovery i'm your host sean nevins for more information about today's guest as well as more interviews books and other resources go to spiritualteachers.org that's spiritualteachers.org